Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacature, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. On today's episode, we're talking about growing your nonprofit program, and we're joined by Diane Brigham from Ryman Arts. Diane shares some great tactics about growing a nonprofit, and especially about keeping alumni engaged and involved. She also talks about the push and pull of offering more services to fewer people or expanding services to serve more people. So Trent, a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we featured Robert Egger of LA Kitchen talking about his organization. And then uh, just recently, they announced that they're suspending their nonprofit programs um, due to a lack of funding. So I guess what I want to talk to you about is how do you handle when your vision for what your organization could be? Because I think LA Kitchen had big goals. How do you handle that when it exceeds the available funds? Well, it's important to get this out on the table also, which is that we were one of their funders. So when they didn't have enough nonprofit funding, some of what they did have was ours. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that we hoped to fund may not come to fruition because we made a grant that may not actually be executed in its entirety. And that's sad for everybody involved. I'm okay with it. We roll the dice sometimes on things that we think can have large impact. And it'd be insane if those always worked. This would be really easy if we all knew which kinds of organizations and which kinds of people were going to change the sector and bring about transformative change for everybody involved. These are big problems. Feeding people in Los Angeles is a big issue. I'm okay. And Robert, in this particular case with us, was honest. He was transparent. He got out in front of it. He told us where they were struggling, why they were struggling, when they were struggling, and when they had to suspend their nonprofit operations for a while. We were the first one he called. I'm okay with it because we invested in an organization and a person and a vision. And as far as I can tell, they gave it everything they possibly had. And in this particular case, it didn't work, but that's okay. I just think that, you know, that we have to every once in a while swing for the fences in this sector. And we're a risk averse foundation, just like every other foundation is. But if we don't try big things every once in a while, we're never going to solve these types of problems. And when you try big things, whether you're a nonprofit or whether you're a funder, you have to be willing to accept some level of risk and some level of failure. And I say that with all respect for everyone involved. Do you think that the vision at LA Kitchen or the model was too complicated or do you think it was like too big, too fast? I'm not sure. I really not. I mean, yeah. I, it made sense to me, but maybe it didn't make sense to the market. It's also important to remember that there have been a lot of organizations in Los Angeles for a long time who have focused on feeding people. Robert came in and said, there's a better way. I have a better way. I'm going to transform this sector. And that was something that we and others were willing to bet on. But it's possible that there wasn't a better way at this particular place and time. We'll see. I'm still willing to bet on Robert Egger. I think he's a smart guy. I think the folks at LA Kitchen who are still there doing some of their other programming are good people. And I think there is a need in this community. But I do think that, you know, it's possible that when people come in and say, I'm going to do this bigger, better, faster, smarter than anyone else has ever done before, there's a possibility for failure. It's always hard, I think, coming in on the fundraising side to see a program that doesn't have enough of a runway 
and I don't think this is the case at LA Kitchen, just this in general, enough of a runway to say, we're going to build the funding for our big gigantic vision. Um, but they get themselves in the position of if we don't raise $150,000 in the next 30 days, we're going to have to close. And I think from a fundraising point of view, sometimes it's just not possible to get money in that fast a lot of times. So as fun, like as a fundraiser, I always like to see slow growth. Sure. We'd all like to see <laughs> slow growth because, yeah. you know, that's, you know, it's it's predictable and it's stable. Um, one of the things that I do respect about the L.A. Kitchen situation right now is that as things got difficult for L.A. Kitchen and for Robert Egger, he didn't come running back to those five or six of us who had supported him since the beginning and say, I need you to bail me out. Yeah. Um, because we made a grant last year and we made it with our eyes wide open. But he knew that he wasn't on strong financial footing at this point. And any grant from us at this point was just going to bail them out temporarily and was going to lead to bad blood in the long run. So he decided to cease those operations, back away from it, try to figure out if there's a systemic issue, try to figure out what the relationship was with the county and the city, and try to build that long runway while maintaining their other operations, their other for-profit operations. My least favorite phone call in the world is the organization that calls and says, if you don't fund me, I'm going under. Because as awful as it is, I say, yeah, then you're going to go under. Because if I bail you out today and you don't have strong financial footing um, and my 50000 or 500000 is the only difference between you being able to keep your doors open and your doors closing, we're going to be back here again next year. You have larger fish to fry and you need to figure out what's going on with your organization, figure out if there's a need that you're serving, figure out if your board and your staff are the right people at the right time. But me bailing you out with an emergency grant it doesn't get anybody anywhere. My money's better spent with an organization that has more stable footing right now. Is there ever a good time for an emergency grant? If the circumstances have changed dramatically for some reason, and we can understand this is a one-time blip, sure. Okay. We did some of that even after 2008 um, when the financial collapse happened. Organizations that we had supported for a long time, that had been around for a long time, had done work for a long time, we realized that whatever happened in 2008 was probably not going to happen again in 2009. So if we could make an emergency grant to keep their doors open, they could go about rebuilding their organization. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a really good example. Um, so this week we're talking to Diane Brigham from Ryman Arts. They've been around for a long time, yes, doing good work. 30 years. And I think what struck me about them is just the slow methodical growth that they've gone through. So do you think there's a downside to being too slow to grow? No, you know, unless you see a chance to act and the moment is right and you have to act for whatever reason, whether it's ethical or moral or financial, um, and you've written into your bylaws that you don't, you know, then I guess there would be a downside. But I don't I don't know anybody yeah. that in the long run regrets having gradual and stable growth in their organization or in their in their checkbook. So today we have Diane Brigham, the executive director of Ryman Arts. 
Diane, thank you so much for being here. I'm delighted to be here and join this. To start, tell us just a little bit about Ryman Arts. Ryman Arts is a community of young artists that we bring together to provide studio art classes in drawing and painting and college and career planning. We work with teens from all over Southern California who are passionate about making art and really see it as a possibility for their future. And our goal is to help them get there. You're not bringing art classes to schools. It's the students that are really looking to do a deep dive into the arts that are coming to you. Yes, students apply to this program and it's held on weekends at our uh, partner uh, organizations, the Otis College of Art and Design and California State University at Fullerton. They both provide studio space for us to use on the weekends. So these high school age uh, student artists get the feel of being on a college campus and really can feel like they've got to take their art making to the next level. How did it start? It started in 1990 uh, as really the vision of our founders who wanted to find a way to, I think, marry two thoughts. One, to honor the memory of an esteemed artist, uh, Herbert Ryman, who had worked for Walt Disney and had been quite influential in the early days of the company, but also had maintained an active fine art career throughout his life. And his friends and family wanted to find a way to celebrate his commitment to teaching foundation skills of drawing and painting, which we do. And I think the other part of their thinking was that there really was a need in the creative industries to have artists who were well prepared with foundation skills in visual art. And this would be a way to provide what schools, even at the in the best of programs, cannot always do for the more advanced students. And I think uh, there also was a real interest in making a difference in the community and providing access for young people who were interested in art, but really wouldn't have the resources and opportunity in other ways. It's extremely powerful. It's why I describe it as a community, because this is a community that many of these young people have not found, you know, otherwise. It brings them together with such a diverse mix of other kids who are just as passionate about making art, and they really feel like, oh, I can exhale. I can be myself here. We often think a big part of our work is to really communicate the fact that I see you. Mm -hmm. I see you. You matter. You are valuable. And I think that uh, for many adolescents is such an important message for them to be hearing. That's great. Um, how many applications do you get a year and how many do you accept? Uh, it varies a little bit semester to semester, but each year we oh, we might get 200 applications and accept about half of that okay. number, and that might vary a little bit. But the students uh, apply by submitting a couple of their drawings and an essay, and we try to look for students who not necessarily have the most polished drawings, but who look like they really care about it and put effort and time into it and have something there that would be wonderful to see flourish. And you have a pretty active alumni base too, right? We do. Being around for almost 30 years, and although we started with just, I think, 12 kids in 1990, uh, and now we work with something like 600 every year, so it's really grown. And the numbers then of alumni have grown as well. And we really do try to keep them very engaged. Uh, we want to continue helping them get launched in their lives and provide 
provide professional development and networking opportunities and social events, art exhibitions, all kinds of things to help them on their continued journey. Uh, But we also see them as role models and mentors for the current students in the program. So we tend to hire our alumni as teaching assistants for our classes and as interns and to work on various projects with us. I feel like so many nonprofits struggle with the alumni question. There must have been a point where where the organization said, we really should be doing more with them. How do we find them and get them back in? Or has this been something that's since day one has been a part of it? That's a great question because I think it really is a dilemma. We want to stay focused on our core mission of working with the young people who were the high school students, of course. But we keep seeing that that need continues as we develop our personal relationships with the students. It doesn't end when they graduate from our program and graduate from high school. So I think we over time have seen the need that they still need us and we want to be connected with them. Uh, So we try to maintain uh, contact and relationships with them. But we have had a renewed effort over the past few years as we've realized there are thousands of Ryman Arts alumni. And now they are, they're not just in college at this point. They are running design firms. They are teaching. They are nominating the next generation of students. They have children who might be applying to Ryman Arts. It's an incredible network that we have. And so we've really been trying to uh, maximize the potential of that, both for the alumni's development, uh, for our students' development as people who can be mentors and inspiration, but honestly, also as a nonprofit that has to sustain ourselves. These are our future supporters because they believe in how Ryman Arts transform their lives. So they are natural people to be spokespeople and supporters of the organization going forward. So how do you keep them involved? Like, what are the tactics you use to like find, stay in touch and continue the engagement? We've experimented with a couple of different things and we've evolved over time. One uh, piece of it is we try to always have an alumnus serve on our board of directors. So we look for an alumnus who now is at that point in his or her career where they're ready to give back and board service would both be a way they can contribute to Ryman Arts and support it. But it also is a continued professional development and leadership development for that person as an individual. So board service, I think, is one aspect of that. We also have, over the past few years, had various positions uh, in the organization of alumni engagement in some way. Currently, we've been funded for an alumni fellow. So a fellowship that we could give to an alumnus of the program to work on projects that were of his or her own interest related to alumni engagement, and also to consider how can we do appropriate fundraising campaigns that would engage alumni in particular, more peer-to-peer, more of a scale and of the using social media that might be really um, appropriate for the alumni given their age and how mobile they are right now in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can sometimes feel exhausting, I think, to be in the alumni group of something and then continuously get fundraising messages. We've really tried to balance that. We want to be sure that alumni see 
CPS first as a continued resource in their lives and a place where they can still feel part of this community. We just had a uh, community stakeholders meeting as we worked on updating our mission, and a number of the participants were alumni of the organization. And it was powerful to hear their voices sharing how Ryman Arts transformed their lives, how much it meant to them in very different arenas. Not all of them work in the arts professionally, but something about this community that they became part of was really invaluable to them. You've been the executive director for how long? Since 2002, so for about 16 years. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm did surprised you, myself. Did you, did you just realize how long you've worked there? <laughs> I think it's always a realization <laughs> when you actually say the years. Congra- wow. Well, congratulations on that. How has the organization grown in 16 years? Well, it's grown in numbers substantially. I think uh, it's probably quadrupled in size uh, in terms of the numbers of students in our core programs. But we've grown and evolved in other ways as well. We have really thought about what is our role in the larger community and how can we be of service to Southern California. For example, we uh, made a commitment to spearheading the Big Draw LA and creating that as a community opportunity for the public to get involved in art making and specifically drawing all over the region in just fun, informal ways as a means of building community and bringing the arts to people and having our students be a part of that experience. Yeah. Tell me about Big Draw LA. Big Draw LA is part of a much larger uh, global initiative around um, encouraging the public to participate in art making. We do it here in Southern California every October. And the idea is for community organizations, both arts and non-arts organizations, to organize simple or elaborate drawing activities that really are about everyone participating. So we'll be spearheading, for example, a big festival called Make Your Mark in the Park. So downtown LA will come alive. Last year, we had 2,000 members of the public just wandering in and experiencing probably a dozen or more booths and activities about drawing, all led, in this case, by our student artists from Ryman Arts. So they had a chance to try their hand at all kinds of drawing experiences, from actually drawing costume models to tape drawing on the sidewalks and having things that were very accessible uh, for families, for older folks, for all kinds of folks to join in. And what do big public events like that do for the organization? Where do, what does that get you or what do you hope to get out of doing that? From doing that over the years, we've gained a couple of things. One, we've built a community of other uh, colleagues and organizations, again, both arts and non-arts organizations, but ones who believe in the potential and power of art for public engagement. So we built a stronger network, I think, for the community and created uh, an ecology, a system uh, that, you know, I think is more supportive for the arts, we hope. So I think that's one part of it. But a benefit to Ryman Arts specifically is that our name is out in the community in some different ways. We're so known for the high quality of our intensive program for high school age students that we may not have been so well known in the larger community. And this brought a little bit more attention to the organization. A third benefit is that it gives our student artists a real genuine means of testing out how they might want to work in the future. Many artists work in public art and in community education 
And this gives them a little taste of that. Do you like being out there and interacting with the public? Um, they are often amazed that others are amazed at their talent and ability. And so that's a delightful thing for a teenager to see that uh, there are people in awe of their abilities, but also in awe of their enthusiasm. And they can share that and spread that with others. And I think that's a real growth opportunity for the teens. Mm -hmm. Since that big public event is so different from what you do, do you find that it's a, a way to get different new funders or sponsors engaged with you? Or is it, or do you kind of keep the same circle of funders for everything? Yes, it allows us to be looking at uh, corporations and other groups that might be interested in sponsorships and just different ways of engaging with Rhyme and Arts where they want to be more episodic or even volunteers mm -hmm. who might want to help us with oh, something. sure. Yeah, and you even, probably don't have a great capacity for huge amounts of volunteers in your other program, but this would allow that. That's right. Uh, and even partnering with groups like Ciclavia and uh, Graham Park and the Music Center, you know, who have all participated in big ways in doing these big festivals, I think, you know, have introduced us to new opportunities, you know, for future projects. So what are some of the challenges in running this organization? I think one is what I always think of as a kind of creative tension, but in growth. You've uh, asked me how Ryman Arts has grown, and I the first uh, response I gave you was in numbers. And that is certainly wonderful. And what's next? Do you keep growing in terms of numbers served? Is that the right kind of growth for our organization? Should we be serving and aspiring to serve more and more young people? The need is there. We turn away too many students every year. And then that plays against the idea of deeper engagement with the students with whom we already are working and the populations that we already get to interact with. So what else do these students need? college planning and college guidance and really a deep dive into helping students with their plans for college and making it an aspiration for virtually all of our students to the point where almost all of them do go on to college, an incredible record for an organization like ours. That is now an increasing part of the program. So there's that creative tension, I think, between do you aspire to serve more numbers or do you serve more holistically and deeper the students and young people, your clients that you already are working with? Yeah. And where have you come down on that? <laughs> we have, TBD? <laughs> <laughs> there's always a little bit of TBD, right? As we continue to work, our board and staff working together to think what's the best use of Ryman's resources and what does the community need most? Uh, but I think we've tried to do a balance of both of them, frankly, and testing how we can be of greatest impact. And certainly our uh, expansion over the years is a testament that we do believe that we can serve more. Now, at the capacity we are, you know, I think we're at another crossroads to think, do we grow yet again in terms of numbers? Um, so how do you find funding for the organization? I'm, I assume you need funding. Indeed, we need funding. And that is our everyday work and challenge. And frankly, a kind of um, wonderful aspect of the organization as well. I see this as an incredible opportunity because it means sharing our story, sharing what Ryman Arts is about, the impact of it with people who might be interested in getting involved and becoming part of it. And with that in mind, I think fundraising really tends to be pretty exciting to do, to think about how can we connect with others who might want to get involved with this 
cause with this mission and make a difference and really feel like they've invested in young people. So is the majority of funding coming in through grants and foundations or is it individuals? It's is really, one source like really most of it? I think in our early days it was, you know, it was, uh, we were very strong in the foundation support area and that is terrific. But a goal of ours that we have really worked hard at is to diversify the revenue sources. We also have support from government, the Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the California Arts Council, the city, and so on. And those, as you know, are also highly variable these days. And so that's something for us to be thinking about and to be realistic about. A real effort for us has been on the individual side. And how do we keep building up individual support for the organization, people who are going to want to support us through downturns and upturns and expansions mm -hmm. and sustaining. Uh, that's really, I think, where the creative challenge yeah. is for us and probably for most. So what have you done to build up your individual support? I think that has been a combination of things. Our board has become more and more engaged in that individual fundraising and really seeing that as part of their role to reach out to their colleagues, but also to tell the story of Ryman Arts to people in in different circles than I could be doing, but also they tell the story in different ways. Mm -hmm. They see the impact of Ryman Arts in some different terms than I might yes. see it. So I think that is really valuable. And I think I have seen over time that I have to carve out more and more time to make sure we're developing the relationships with individuals that ultimately will make the biggest difference for us. It is just constant relationship building. And I think sometimes uh, that reality is missed because of there's so much day-to-day -day work and the fact that it's about building relationships yeah. constantly. Yeah. So how do you cultivate those donors? How do you build those relationships? I think one of the most powerful ways is trying to get potential donors to see our program in action. Mm -hmm. That's really critical. I, that then... I'm sure every group would say this, but that's when the program sells itself, is if someone can see it in action. They can see our classes, they can meet a couple of students, talk to an alumnus of the program. That makes a big difference. I think we have a special challenge in that our program is not always so easy or convenient to be seen. It's episodic. You can't just come down on a Tuesday afternoon and see our classes in action. It's on weekends. It's at specific locations. You've got to be willing to come and see it on a Saturday morning or afternoon or a Sunday morning or afternoon. And that sometimes has posed challenges for us. What are other things that you do to kind of increase the numbers of people that are interacting with your program? Another strategy we've tried that I think is worth others considering as well, we do something called Ryman on View. So we pick a date when our classes are going to be in session, and we uh, promote it as a day to come have a tour of our classes, have coffee and bagels, and meet a couple of our board members, a couple of our staff, and so on. It's informal, it's light, but it's a specific day, it's a specific time. It's a deadline. Yes, you RSVP for mm -hmm. it. It's a very good tool for staff and for our board members when they meet folks in their daily life to say, oh, if you're interested in seeing Ryman Arts in action, we have something coming up on a particular date. Come join me. I'll send you a little note about it. And even if it's a dozen people, that's really valuable. We can be efficient with our time. 
we can gather a couple of great storytellers in our alumni uh, to be there and they could see the program in action and meet others who are also kind of curious about rhyme and arts. But that has allowed us to be a little more efficient. Uh, of course, I'm happy to give anybody a tour on sure. any weekend. But by having, you know, a date here and there that is specific, it really has facilitated our efficiency in uh introducing people to the program. I like that because it, it gives the board something really tangible to do on a certain date by a certain date when something's like open-ended of if you meet someone let me know and we'll bring them to a classroom that's almost not specific enough um, but a very you know we have this thing it's coming up your job is to invite people in I think that's a great board task because I think board members are at their best when they're inviting. Yes. And it has resulted in all kinds of things, not necessarily gifts, because this is not a solicitation, Absolutely. which is part of the yeah, power of it. Yeah. This is not a fundraising event where we're going to ask you for money at the end. We're here to share your our program with you and answer your questions and introduce it. So it has a very different and more comfortable feel, but it has yielded results. It's yielded board members. It's yielded, it has yielded gifts. It's yielded partnerships, um, you know, that we wouldn't have envisioned. Well, it seems like that, you know, to use an old fundraising phrase, the fortunes and the follow up there, right? So are you meeting people and then deciding what you'll do to follow up or is there standard follow up or what do you do after? That's a brilliant question because that is the key piece here. Uh, we have found it is critical for either the board member or myself or one of our senior staff to give a phone call to the people who attended, you know, early the next week and just say, hi, it was great to meet you. What'd you think? It's really a question about what did you think of the program? How was it for you? What new questions do you have? You know, what's your reaction? Uh, again, not asking them at that moment for them to give us anything, but really to understand more from their perspective, what was the program like? And most often they find it something, you know, there was something about it that was really compelling, but what was it, what was compelling for you? And that gives us some insight into how we might want to engage them going forward. So are those phone calls, it left off with, uh, is there anything you'd like to do to be involved? Or would can you see yourself being involved? Is it do you go that far? Or is it still just I think, I think it varies. Yeah. I, I think we uh, find that there are some folks where you just see that is the the next question to ask, yeah. like, hey, how might you see yourself involved being involved? That is perfect for some. And then for others, you realize from the way that they're talking with you, that isn't something that's even in the cards for them at this time. And so, fine, I'm curious about this, you know, let's stay in touch and we leave it a little more open-ended. And it seems like, so if you're doing those phone calls, I feel like you would have really good judgment on like what someone's feeling and where you could slot them in. How do you train your board to do those phone calls? I think it's similarly, I think they have a similar sensibility uh, over time from doing this. And they may have had an idea in advance of why that they invited that individual to come. So they're test, testing, excuse me, in that conversation, the idea of, hmm, was my hunch right? Is this someone who is interested in doing more or their company is interested or ah, I was off base on that. And so I think they're testing their hunches as well. Um, so the strategy seems to be treat people like people. <laughs> Solid strategy. Always a winning strategy, <laughs> I think, in any realm, yes. 
one of the things she talks about is uh, they're redoing their mission statement because they realized after 30 years it didn't quite fit their organization. How closely do you look at mission statements? It's the first thing we look at just Mm -hmm. to get an idea of what the organization itself is trying to do because I don't ever want to provide my lens onto your organization. We want to evaluate you um, reactively, which is what is it that you're trying to do? What is it that you hold yourself out to the community for? So it's important for us to understand your intent before we can start figuring out whether we want to fund it or not. So we start with who you are. It's your, you know, it's your online dating profile. It's your chance to tell us what you do and whether that resonates with us. And we can go from there. But we always start with the mission statement. Um, do you think that nonprofits have a pressure to always be growing the program? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we as funders are kind of always given this this choice of do you want to fund an organization that does a lot for just a few people or does just a little bit for a lot of people? And oftentimes organizations feel like they have to get to one of those, you know, that, you know, ideally the perfect organization would do a lot for a lot of people. And, you know, that's just harder to find. So I think organizations oftentimes are asking themselves, how do we get to somewhere else than where we are? And I think that we just, we get stuck sometimes of, is that all you are? Is that all you do is what you do right now? And it's, you know, it's kind of a disappointing question. And I wish we asked less of it. We've instead we asked, you know, is that what you do? Um, <laughs> and do you do it well? Um, and leave out the the all. Yeah, I think sometimes there's pressure to show that there's a long wait list for the program, to show that there's high demand for the program. Like that's kind of become a, a quality measure for a lot of nonprofits to be able to say, like, see how many people we can't serve. Yeah, I guess. It just seems to me like that's then a societal failure. I don't need to be reminded on a daily basis that there are a lot of people who would like to be inside the tent. I get it. Um, I live in Los Angeles. I fund in Los Angeles. I drive around all day long in Los Angeles. I know that there's great need here in Los Angeles. I would rather know about what you're doing for those that you're already serving than hear about those that are out there that you haven't been able to get to. That's interesting to hear from you that it's not very persuasive to do that, because I think it's the instinct of a lot of organizations to to show that. No, because I think, you, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a lazy, slippery slide argument of, you know, we could just go on forever. You know, once we're done telling you that there are 300 people on the waiting list at our preschool, we could add all the people in the state and all the people in the country and all the people in the world who don't have high quality preschool. So, I, I again, I just want to know what you are, not what you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's better to just tell us what it is you're doing and, and why it's good. And, you know, if I like it and you're only serving, you know, 65 people, I'll ask, is there a way to serve 95 people or mm-hmm. 65,000 people um, or more people? But I don't need to know about those people up front. It seems like, too, from talking to Diane, you know, she was thinking about growth in two ways of like deepening services with who they already serve or extending those services to serve more people. Do you weigh those differently or do you look at those differently in grant applications? No, I mean, I guess this is what I was getting at earlier was this idea that, you know, you can, you know, serve a lot of people skin deep or you can serve just a few people and provide high quality services. Ideally, you would serve a ton of people um, at a really high level, but that costs money and people and there just aren't as many organizations out there that are they're doing that. I think my bias as a funder is 
I guess I would err on the side of having high impact for a lesser amount of people. You know, we, we don't fund people who want to take kids to a concert, um, even though we like music and we like kids. I just don't believe that one two hour concert is going to transform a child's life. I would rather, you know, take 10 kids and get them music lessons. So I, I think that, you know, we would rather fund depth than breath, but ideally you do both. So a question from someone that wrote in, um, why are we so restricted by grants from doing anything even remotely political? You know, I hear this a lot, and I think that oftentimes there's another issue at play, which is I think people don't understand what they can and cannot do politically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in theory, you actually can do a lot more than you think. And I would urge people to read the Internal Revenue Code or call a lawyer or go to the Council on Foundations website and see what you're allowed to do in terms of advocacy. Because I think people err on the side of thinking they can't do what they actually can do. But also, I think in practice, the last person that was actually prosecuted for doing something political at their charity was probably associated with the Salem witch trials or something. It, <laughs> it just doesn't happen. We have a president who has not only used his foundation for political purposes, but has urged that other nonprofits should be allowed to be as political as possible. So it's it just, I think it's a, it's a phony issue in mm. a lot of cases. Okay. Um, a, you're allowed to do a lot more than you think. And B, even if you cross the line, You didn't hear this from me, but the idea of you being prosecuted is slim to none in any way whatsoever. I do think you need to recognize the fact that there are market forces at play, which is usually the bigger determinant here, which is know full well that if you take yourself out onto a line politically, whatever it may be about, that there's a donor out there that may like it and there's another donor out there that may not like it. Um, And so I think that should be the guide for most nonprofits, which is, you know, where is this going to affect my bottom line? And do I have a a, a compelling and ethical reason to do so? In which case, be prepared for the fallout. But this idea that the Internal Revenue Code is going to come and send out some agents from the IRS to arrest me if, you know, we said that the locking up of children in cages was a barbaric idea to this country. It's just not going to happen. I think the story that we're told is that we will lose our 501c3 status if we do. No one ever loses their 501c3 status. (laughs) No one. I dare people to call in to this podcast and tell me about the nonprofit that lost their 501c3 status. We will start a hotline. (laughs) We will do it. It just doesn't happen. This is part of the problem with nonprofit status, which is once you get it, you don't ever go back in front of anybody and prove that you deserve it. It just lives in perpetuity. You will lose it eventually if you don't raise any money or if you don't file any tax returns. But I have not heard of anybody losing it anytime soon for some sort of ideological reasons. It's funny, too. It's like you never really break it down. You hear it's a rule. And so everyone goes, "Okay, it's a rule. Um, It might be a good rule, but it's not a rule being followed. um, I would assume that there would probably be some notification process, too, that it's like, hey, you're in danger of it's not just they come down one day and and like, do what? Take away your take away your certificate. <laughs> yeah, your your button. It just doesn't happen. Your button goes away. It doesn't happen. <laughs> that, that would be amazing if that was the process. Do what you were called to do. You're in the sector for a reason. You want to do good. If you think that's the way to do good, speak up. 
That's a good end. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.